Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast for August 2022. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And we've got a real treat for you once again this month with some great holiday listening for you to catch up with the latest goings on in emergency medicine. Uh, we've got a real feast, some stuff on community emergency medicine, a bit on COVID-19, bit on triage and quite a bit on paediatric emergency medicine as well. So I'm going to take the first paper and uh, this is the editor's choice for this month as well. And the title of the paper is Population Level Impact of a Pulse Oximetry Remote Monitoring Programme on Mortality and Healthcare Utilisation in People with COVID-19 in England, a national analysis using a stepped wedge design. Sorry, a bit of a mouthful, that title. And this is by a group of people with the lead author being uh, Beanie et al., And essentially, this uh, study was a retrospective cohort study using a stepped wedge pre-implementation and post-implementation design across all the commissioning groups uh, or nearly all the commissioning groups in England, 106 of them. And essentially, what they were looking at is looking at if uh, pulse oximetry in the community for symptomatic people over October 2020 to May 2021 with those over 65 years old, could identify, you know, what was the outcome from them and, and what happened to these people being monitored at home. Essentially, for this, you know, the eligibility criteria was you diagnosed with COVID or clinically positive or tested positive and you were symptomatic or you were 65 and over or 65 years older at higher risk from COVID. Pregnant women were, were not included and neither were care home residents because they sort of felt that these people were going to be likely at high risk. And what they wanted to know was what happened to these people um, over the 28 days where they had a positive COVID test. And with outcomes looking at death from any cause, uh, how many A&E department attendances, how many admissions from this. Uh, any critical care admissions and the total length of stay or those who admitted, you know, did they die? What happened within those 28 days? So amazingly, they had an amazing set of people that they had the data to look back through. And this was a combination of sort of NHS digital data, looking across the primary and secondary care, um, COVID test positive data. I had this amazing pool of nearly 220,000 people. And from this, what they managed to do was get um, about data for about 2.5%, so about 5,500 people. And overall, they found that at a population level in England, there was no associated change in mortality after implementation of this program, i.e. they found by keeping people at home and watching their um, oxygen levels didn't change massively uh, in attendances within the emergency department or hospital admissions. And I think why this was so useful is, you know, thinking back to, you know, you know, 2020, 2021, there was huge hospital pressures both in the UK and, and globally. And actually, if you could manage some of these patients at home with with these pulse oximeters and, and have an eye about what's happened, um, you know, that would free up beds and free up resources. So, yeah, so essentially this study found that actually with patients over 65, with what we've discussed, that actually monitoring them at home didn't really change their morbidity or mortality a huge amount. And, you know, this could be useful for ongoing pandemics. Rick, what do you think? 
Well, I thought it was a fascinating study. Um, really good to see a national evaluation of this COVID Oximetry at Home programme, which we all, I think, participated in uh, locally. So it's good to see that actually the patient outcomes didn't worsen if we kept them out of hospital. So that's very reassuring. We can do this. It doesn't seem to make patients' outcomes worse. I was really amazed by the agility of the system to get this big data project done, though. I mean, this relied on using NHS digital data in the context of a pandemic across the country and linking it to patient outcomes. Now, ordinarily, when we're trying to do that, um, it's going to take us years. It takes you about three years to get approvals for it. I've done several of these projects and uh, we're just not that agile at getting data out. So it's really heartening to see that the authors here were able to do this in a matter of months. I know that there, were, there, were, there were some very influential people in the authorship who you know, will have known how to go about getting the approvals uh, the right way. But clearly, I think there was some incentive to do this very fast in the COVID-19 pandemic, and they've done it. Uh, it just shows what can be done. So hopefully, we'll learn the lessons that actually, we can be agile like this with big data research, and we need to be in the future. What was really important with this uh, group was that um, this was the over 65 cohorts. Now, a lot of the papers that we've discussed, actually, and, have, and you know, I've read over the last few years about COVID has been about, you know, sort of the younger patients and trying to keep them out of hospital and monitoring them with, with oxygen. It was really refreshing to see this elderly or the more traditionally elderly population, the over 65 who were, you know, we know are at higher risk of COVID complications. So it was really refreshing to see that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So a great start. Really good editor's choice this month. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll move on to the second paper, which I've had a look at, uh, and this is also fascinating. So it's about community emergency medicine. There are several areas uh, of the UK that now run community emergency medicine services, and that's where you typically have an emergency physician and a paramedic, perhaps, who will go out and look at patients in the community and deliver emergency medicine at the patient's home rather than bringing the patient to us. And this is a study to evaluate the community emergency medicine services that we've got in the UK and Ireland. So it's run by the Photon Group. It's really nice to see that group publishing some papers now. So Photon is a pre-hospital trainee-operated research network. Um, what they've done is they've used snowball sampling to try and find out which areas of the country have community emergency medicine services. What that means is they've used multiple different methods like word of mouth, they've used social media, They've identified all the services they can, and then they've gone out to question them about how their services are delivered, how they're set up. And it's a really interesting piece. If you're interested in community emergency medicine, this tells us about the state of play in the country right now. So they have a look at what those services are there to do. So generally, those services aspire to reduce conveyances by ambulance, so reducing presentations to the ED. The services were generally staffed, as I said, by an emergency physician and, and one member of staff from the ambulance service. All of the services said that they take referrals from the ambulance control centre, but some of the services took additional uh, sources of referral as well. So, for example, uh, from oncology teams or frailty teams also referred into that community emergency medicine service. And when they evaluated the um, conveyance rate um, that had been reported by these services, uh, it was between 40 and 70% of patients are not conveyed to the emergency department. I thought that was quite an impressive statistic, actually, keeping a lot of patients out of hospital. A lot of them are monitoring patient outcomes as well to make sure that they're not doing any patient harm, which is great. 
They also reported on the equipment the teams have. Uh, so one service has a portable x-ray and even has a radiographer in the teams. You can go out and do x-rays at the patient's uh, home or wherever they are. Four of them had point of care testing and three of them had portable ultrasound scanning. It's a really amazing service that's been set up in these places. There were um, several of them. I think there were four in England. There were a couple in Wales and there was one in Ireland. Uh, so this piece really nicely describes the services that we've got at the moment. It's, a, it's an excellent model for other areas to copy. Uh, and what the authors then call for is a centrally derived definition of community emergency medicine. So we can exactly uh, define its scope of practice and the standards that would be expected from that service. Uh, we can standardise the training. There was quite some variation in training. And perhaps we can sort of standardise the equipment that's used across these community emergency medicine services. Uh, it's got to be a growing area. So this uh, paper gives us a really nice starting point to define what we're doing right now and where we need to go to from here. What do you think about that, Sarah? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I was just sat here um, thinking about what you were saying and, and trying to understand community emergency medicine versus what pre-hospital emergency medicine is, because I think what's becoming clear is that actually the pre-hospital environment in the context of emergency medicine is very different and actually, I think, as you say, a definition and really understanding what that role is within community emergency medicine will be really important, particularly, you know, versus pre-hospital emergency medicine, which is much more established and has its own curriculum and things like that. So I think it's hugely fascinating and and shows that actually, you know, if you've got the right people out in the community making these decisions, then actually you don't need to admit people. But I would imagine this is expensive to do. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's one of the challenges. But you're absolutely right. I think it's a it's a very different way of thinking about pre-hospital emergency medicine. We normally think about going out to the sickest patients so we can deliver resuscitation. Here, we're thinking about going out to patients who might avoid conveyance with some diagnostic workup. And there's got to be a big market, I was going to say, untapped potential there for us to, to use that. So moving on, uh, we're going to have a look at cardiac arrest. Uh, Sarah, you've got a paper looking at the association of the the COVID pandemic with bystander CPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Tokyo? Yeah, so this paper um, was by Shibashi et al. and essentially looked at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest pre and post, or not pre and post, but pre and during the pandemic, the early phases of the pandemic back in 2020. So essentially, they've got a database like many countries have of out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and they compared pre uh, the um, country going into lockdown, which for them was the 6th of April 2020, and during the declaration of the state of emergency, which was the 7th of April 2020 to the 25th of May 2020. And interestingly, what they found was that, um, you know, Witnessed arrests pre and post this were exactly the same, but they found that during the pandemic that actually um, there was more bystander CPR than there was before the pandemic, to the point where that uh, bystander CPR rates before and after the declaration periods increased from 34.4% to 43.9%, so nearly a 10% increase in that out-of-hospital cardiac arrests getting involved um, with people getting involved and what the paper you know concludes is is that it's unclear really as to why from this work why that happened survival rates in both groups are exactly the same 
But there was a feeling from the paper and from what they gleaned was that there may be a sort of a period of solidarity and people wanting to get together and to do the best for their, you know, compatriots because, you know, of the state of emergency that we were in. And again, this is not typical to some of the papers that we've seen, not with only in this journal, but out there where actually quite a lot of CPR rates went down in COVID um, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So um, it was quite interesting to see that, um, Rick. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess during the pandemic, people are less likely to be out and doing stuff, which might perhaps explain the higher rates of bystander CPR. But at the same time, you might have thought with worries about COVID that it's actually there would be less bystander CPR, and that's not what they saw. They also saw outcomes maintained. Uh, one of my worries was, of course, you know, the, the appropriate concern about personal safety when we were resuscitating patients with cardiac arrest at the height of the pandemic. I was worried that that would lead to worse patient outcomes in cardiac arrest because we're, we're you know, spending so long getting PPE on, it might delay some of the resuscitation procedures. Uh, actually, here we see no, no indication of that from Tokyo. So that's, that's heartening to see. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think this leads nicely into the next COVID paper, which isn't about cardiac arrest, but um, is about national early warning scores, Rick. Yeah, that's right. So we had a look here at a multi-centre study from several hospitals in the west of England, uh, and they examined the association between the NEWS2 score and patient outcome in COVID-19. So they took four months of data, patients who presented to those hospitals uh, within the first four months of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, including 1,288 patients all of those patients were COVID positive. They tested positive on a swab. And they had a look at the association between the NEWS2 score and mortality in that context. Um, and the findings are quite interesting. For, number one, you might expect that NEWS2 is associated with patient mortality. That's kind of the expected outcome. But the point here is to define it. You know, no one's ever looked at it. So does news, is NEWS2 still a valid tool to use to predict mortality and adverse outcome? In COVID-19? And the answer is yes, it is. So uh, patients who had higher first scores on News 2 were more likely to die than patients with lower scores. So for example, uh, if you had a News 2 of 0 to 2, then your mortality rate was 19% versus uh, if you had a, a, a score of uh, 7 or more, your mortality was 49%. So there's a, quite a significant difference between the mortality rate with the scores. Uh, you can also see that if the score increases and it deteriorates as an association with um, adverse, mort uh, you know, a, a worse mortality rate in those patients too, which is kind of what you'd expect. So the authors have quantified it with areas under the receiver operating characteristic curves or AUCs. So of course, one would mean perfect diagnostic accuracy. 0.5 means perfectly useless diagnostic accuracy. And here we see for news two that at uh, two days the area under the curve was 0.77. At seven days, it was 0.7. And at 30 days, it was 0.65. So that's not bad. It's not bad diagnostic accuracy for predicting mortality because it's multifactorial, of course. Uh, but they, what I found perhaps the most interesting thing about the paper was that they had a look at the individual components of the score and how predictive they were. So, you know, on, on News 2, we've got um, supplemental oxygen, oxygen saturation. We've got the respiratory rate. They're the respiratory components of the News 2 score. And then we've got other things like the systolic blood pressure, the pulse, and the temperature, as well as the level of consciousness. Uh, what the authors found is that all of them had some diagnostic accuracy. For some of them, it's a bit weak, actually. 
Uh, but the respiratory components in particular had high uh, diagnostic accuracy. So they, if you're on supplemental oxygen, whether you're on supplemental oxygen, for example, that had a, an area under the curve of 0.71, whereas your uh, level of consciousness had an area under the curve of just 0.53. So the respiratory components being so important kind of supported their, you know, the use of um, pulse oximetry at home, actually, which is the thing we looked at earlier, that it's important to monitor that to have a look at patient prognosis. So interesting one, proves the value of News 2 in COVID-19. Do you use News 2, Sarah? Yeah, I think we use an iteration of it. But yeah, we, we do generally use it in, in work with us. And, and it's interesting to see because actually, I think evidence, you know, we know that respiratory rate can be quite a sensitive marker of the deteriorating patient. And again, you know, this is useful to see in COVID, but also, you know, actually probably confirms it sort of mirrors some of the other literature that's out there. But again, yeah, I think, again, this is great with the other paper about, as you say, pulse oximetry at home, about how useful that is and could be for ongoing uh, issues with the pandemic or other respiratory illnesses, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So moving away from COVID now, let's go to paediatric emergency medicine. And you've taken a look at a paper to do with trauma in paediatric emergency medicine. So if you have a cast put on for a fracture, how does that affect your pharmacological analgesia requirements? You had a look at a study which examined that. Yeah, so this is from our Italian colleagues. So very international themed uh, EMJ we've got. We've had it Italy, we've had Tokyo, and we've had the UK. So, and Cosi et al. looked at this need for um, analgesia after you've put a cast on. And, and as they state within the paper, it's probably an area that we probably don't know a huge amount about. So essentially, they did a sort of retrospective observational study looking, you know, over several months from, you know, the end of 2019 into June 2020 of all patients who uh, were between zero and 17 who basically fell and broke whatever bit they broke. And they were looking at the analgesic need post-cast for the 10 days after. Um, And what they had over that period, they had 213 patients that met that criteria. And, you know, as you'd expect, the the most popular site of fracture was the arm, followed by the hand, followed by the leg, and then followed by the foot. With the most popular fracture location or fractured bone was the phallus of the finger, followed by the radius, followed by the fibula, and followed by the radius and the ulna in, in, in this cohort. And what they found was about 65% of them actually didn't need any analgesia after the cast was put on over that period. And about 47 of them, you know, a very small number of them actually only needed analgesia for the first day or two. The, The fractures that were most associated with needing analgesia were not unsurprisingly were the displaced fractures um, and they often needed much more analgesia. Now, I think what this study is and what it concludes with is actually, I think, you know, plaster casts themselves provide huge, great analgesia and that actually it may be practice around the world where you might schedule analgesia for, you know, the patients to have or you might say for X number of days or what have you. And actually what this paper suggests is that actually we may need to take a more pragmatic approach, which is give painkillers as and when needed rather than schedule it. Um, I don't know what your thoughts were about this, Rick. 
Yeah, I fully agree with you because the findings of this study really do suggest that, don't they? The vast majority of patients go back to normal activity levels and nearly two-thirds didn't take any analgesia. So just shows that, you know, the, the magic of a plaster cast. Although it's quite interesting to read this one in while well, well also taking into account the FORCE trial results that were published in The Lancet where they had patients with distal radius fractures randomised to um, a cast or a bandage. Basically, the bandage was there because... When they did the patient involvement on that trial, they the parent the parents felt that, that you know they need something, but actually it was essentially doing nothing. And in those uh, sort of uh, distal, you know, the buccal fractures of the distal radius, actually there was no increased analgesia requirement without any immobilization. So it just shows how children bounce back. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm hoping that they'll do the next version of Force Two, which will be bandage versus nothing to see what happens that would be incredible study um so if you're listening out there please do it i think we it would be nice to put buckle fractures and the management of those to bed i think <laughs> yeah absolutely that i agree with you completely it seems that the more the more we look into these things the less we need to do to actually uh, get the children better it seems although of course we need the evidence to prove it I looked at another paper, though, on paediatric emergency medicine uh, from this issue, which looked at the, the other extreme of acuity is for patients who were undergoing intubation in the paediatric emergency department. And this is a study from a U.S. emergency department looking at uh, 628 children who'd undergone intubation in the emergency department. That's a large number of children undergoing intubation from a single centre. And they had a look at the association between the number of attempts to intubate the child's and the adverse events that might have been occurred might have occurred during intubation. So overall, there were 39% of the patients who developed an adverse event. 39% is quite a lot, actually, although there was a bit of a variation in the severity of those adverse events. The most common serious adverse event was hypoxia. So 19% of the children developed hypoxia during intubation. And the most common minor event was uh, main stem intubation. So uh, putting the tube in a little too far. And that occurred in 15%. So the study had really been set up to have a look at whether the number of attempts correlates with adverse events. And it did, quite impressively, in fact. So if you had two attempts at intubating the child, then the adjusted odds ratio for an adverse event was 3.26. Now, that was after adjustment for a number of factors, including, for example, how difficult the airway appeared to be on assessment. If you had three or more attempts, the odds ratio went up to 4.59. Now, you might think, yeah, but, you know, some of those events are quite trivial and quite transient. Who really cares? Well, they also looked at the major adverse events and the association of the number of attempts with, with major adverse events. And the odds ratio for major adverse events, having had three or more attempts, was 9.2. So you're nine times as likely to have an adverse event if it takes you three uh, or more intubation attempts. And to some extent, you might think, yeah, of course it does. But now we know the answer. This clearly shows it. And what's the bottom line on this? Well, for me, my take home would be if you're not getting there on the first pass, you've really got to think about getting perhaps that senior operator to do the intubation. Because often, you know, there's not the most senior person who does the intubation, uh, maybe escalating it because we know that this is a, a significant increase in adverse events. So getting that in experience in early. But we've got to do everything we possibly can to maximize first pass success. I think that's the, the most important bottom line. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit stunned by actually how many intubations they were doing because I think, you know, I work in quite a big centre like you do and actually we don't intubate nearly half that many children over that period. So I guess 
for me, whilst I completely agree with you, Rick, about that, you know, obviously, you know, the first, you know, try and optimize the first past, I guess it's, we just need to be a little bit careful that they may be intubating patients that perhaps we wouldn't be intubating for lots of different reasons, and that the case mix may not be the same. So, but yeah, and I think, you know, that's not a surprise in the pediatric literature, because if you look at the adult literature, you know, obviously, we know that mortality and morbidity is associated with increasing numbers of for attempts of, of intubation. And it's great to see some evidence towards that. Yeah. And, you know, you made a really important point there. We've got to think carefully about whether that intubation is really necessary because clearly there are risks. And I think that applies particularly to children who might need CT scanning, the younger children who might not lie still, for example, who've had trauma. So it, it does call us to be a bit more selective than in adults, for example, where there are no risks, well, very minimal risks to doing that CT scan in the context of trauma. But in children who might need intubation to get the scan, those risks are fairly significant. Absolutely. And thinking about complications in sick children, the next paper you've looked at, Sarah, is looking at benzodiazepine use in children who've been fitting and the incidence of respiratory complications. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, by our Australian colleagues, so really going global today uh, in our EMJ. And this was by, um, I think it's Pfeffer et al., uh, part of the PREDICT network, which is a big pediatric uh, research network out in Australia. And they were looking at the utility of benzodiazepines use in children who are having seizures in the community and sort of the outcomes in that pre-hospital environment. So they did a retrospective observational analysis in Victoria, in Australia, looking at children between zero and 17. And over this time, paramedics attended about five, just over 5,000 children with seizures. And these were the sort of seizures one years and over where you may need to use benzodiazepine. And what they were trying to really unpick was, you know, the amount for respiratory support, what benzodiazepines may have been used, you know, and actually what are the risks with doing all of this? The population itself was, you know, even across all the age groups, you know, even across the genders generally. And, you know, there was quite a significant number in this population where there'd been previous um, history of seizures or diagnosis of epilepsy. The bottom line really was that in out of these 5,000 children, the overall need for respiratory support was actually quite low, which, which was good at sort of 3.2%, so about 166. But what they did find was that as you increase the number of benzodiazepines given, that you're more likely to run into needing respiratory support. And about 10% of these children before the ambulance had even arrived, had already had a benzodiazepine of some description. And this probably fits with, you know, a good proportion of these children or already had a seizure or epilepsy diagnosis. And interestingly, the benzodiazepine of choice in Australia is midazolam. Uh, they've got clonazepam, sometimes was given diazepam, and there were a few that were, were unknown. The bottom line really here is, is while pre-hospital anti-epileptic drug use was infrequent, i.e. they don't use a huge amount of benzos, one, two and greater than two doses of benzodiazepines will often receive need more respiratory support to the point where if if it's been given once, about 8.9% of patients will need respiratory support. If you've given greater than two doses of whatever those benzodiazepines doses, 49.5% of those patients needed respiratory support. And I think this why this paper is really useful is actually we know with other studies that have happened that actually we don't necessarily always need to give benzodiazepines. 
there are other drugs available um, as evidence comes out. So really useful and interesting to sort of quantify what perhaps you and I might see, you know, when they arrive in the emergency department. Yeah, it is really interesting. And it just shows that a, a, a very significant proportion of patients developing respiratory complications needing respiratory support. So makes you think twice about it. Of course, you know, when you've got an uncontrolled seizure, we have to follow the algorithms and give those benzodiazepines. But it does make you think maybe it's time for a little look at the guidelines and to see whether there's a place to put those anti-epileptics that we have in our armory a bit higher up in the algorithm, for example. Yeah, and also it's just, um, you know, I typically use lorazepam. I don't know about you. Do you use lorazepam? So, again, I've just got to be a bit careful that they're using midazolam versus we use lorazepam. And obviously the drugs themselves are slightly they're the same, same, but different. So, again, just sort of thinking about that as well with this paper. But, you know, ultimately benzos, you know, do increase your risk of respiratory depression, don't you? And obviously the more you give, the more likely you're going to get respiratory depression and might need intervention. Yeah, absolutely. Difficult balance, but important to be aware of the potential complications of over-treating um, for a patient who uh, has had uh, seizures, because there are risks both ways. We're now going to focus a little bit on triage, aren't we? We've got a few papers on triage, actually, this month. Uh, so I And again, we've got that uh, international field to the journal. So we're going to start off in Taiwan, and then we're going to go to a couple of different countries as well. So I took a look at a paper, but looking at the, the Taiwan triage and acuity scale, so they, the authors here took two to three months of data from a, an emergency department in mainland China. And they had a look at this triage scale that they use in Taiwan. It was developed in, tri- in Taiwan to see how well it was triaging patients. So the way they did it, they had a look at whether it was correlated with patient disposition and the need for hospital admission, ICU admission and death as well. And they could, they could show that there was a correlation between all of those things and the triage score. And they had a look at the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve as well, the, the AUC, just like we did in one of the other uh, studies we looked at this month. So you can see that the area under the curve for predicting hospital admissions was 0.75. The area under the curve for predicting ICU admission was 0.87, so pretty good. And for death, it was 0.998, so it was nearly perfect for predicting death. So... The authors are concluding that the Taiwan triage and acuity scale was pretty good at triaging patients. Uh, so that's a start for triage. If you're interested in having a look at uh, new uh, triage scales that you might, might, might want to use in your emergency department, there's one. But you've also got one from the Netherlands, Sarah, that you've looked at. Yeah, carrying on our uh, worldwide tour of papers. Yeah, so this is the Netherlands triage standard. So the NTS, uh, this is by Smits et al. And essentially just a brief description of sort of uh, for comparison, really. So they have six levels. They have urgency zero, which is sort of resuscitation, failure of vital functions, and the response time is immediate all the way down to U5, which is advice, no risk for damage, and next working day. So this little study looked at uh, using uh, the triage score um, in three different areas. So uh, general practitioner sort of cooperatives, ambulance dispatching centers, and emergency departments. And essentially, they got a group of just over 200 people across all of these groups. They gave them about 50 cases, some adults, some pediatric. And overall, sort of within the adult and the paediatric, the general agreements were similar. 
So for children, the general practitioner cooperative and emergency department cooperative were fairly similar, around sort of 60 to 65% agreeing with the ambulance dispatch centre being just under the 60s, with an overestimation, interestingly, quite significantly higher in the ambulance dispatch centres in in the 30% versus sort of the the 15% in the general practitioner and emergency department triaging. And that sort of mirrors the adult data. So the adult data was a little bit higher with agreement to sort of in the 70s and 60s with similar sort of, you know, uh, ratios of overestimation across the three areas. I mean, the bottom line really is, is that actually the NTS peers to really have good reliability particularly estimating the urgency of health complaints and those at the tail end who don't actually need to be seen. So again, a bit like yours, you know, a really good sort of a good triage system that may be relevant for other areas as well. Yeah, interesting. So we've got another triage scale to have a look at that. And then continuing with the theme, I'm going to tell you about a third one that we've got published in this issue of the journal. And this one comes from Afghanistan. So it's from a trauma registry in uh, Kunduz in uh, Afghanistan, where they they set up a trauma centre in response to the the war in Afghanistan when they're seeing a lot of major trauma. And in this particular study, they've looked at a South African triage scale or SATs, and they included all of the patients who attended their trauma centre over about three and a half years. That's just under 18,000 patients who went to the ED. Uh, and they had a look at whether this triage score was was effectively triaging patients, just like we've done in the other in the previous two. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about this, it was quite interesting. It was done by it was a, where Medicine Frontier were working, so this is uh, involving MSF to do this study. It's quite uh, good, well, more than quite good. Brilliant to see research coming out of um, Afghanistan uh, of this nature. Of all of the patients that sought care in their emergency department. of them received a red triage label and 28.7% were triaged as red or orange. Most of the patients, 99.1% of patients self-referred. I thought that was quite a high proportion, but I guess that might uh, be a reflection of local systems, uh, pre-hospital systems perhaps in countries, I don't know. Uh, The overall mortality was also quite low at 0.6%, which was was heartening. And the South African triage scale identified 90% 90% of those who died by triaging them as red. So 90% of people who died got a red triage rating with the, with the SATS score. And 79% of the people who were admitted to ICU got a red rating as well. So once again, the authors uh, have provided a validation of a triage scale uh, with some impressive data on sensitivity, the red triage uh, rating. And that's another one that we can perhaps add to our armory. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just goes to show, you know, we've got three very different areas of the world with three different triage systems to meet their local population. And I think it just highlights that actually one size doesn't fit all. And lastly, um, the last paper that I just wanted to discuss, and it really is just to draw your attention to this, is a concepts paper, brilliant paper by Keith Marill, and it's around diagnostic and prognostic test assessment in emergency medicine. Really interesting look at likelihood ratios and diagnostic odds ratios. And for those of you that have got exams coming up where there is an element of critical prosy, brilliant paper. I'm not going to dwell on it now, but really lovely to see these statistics papers coming through the emergency medicine journal because actually 
once you've read this paper, you'll really start to get a feel for why likelihood and diagnostic odds ratios can be really helpful for the practicing emergency medicine clinician. Yeah, so I heartily agree with you, Sarah. Uh, every emergency physician should read this because uh, this is a, a crucial thing for us to have a good handle on how we assess diagnostic test accuracy. It relates to all of our practice every single day, uh, what we do. We've got to understand how diagnostic testing works because we are often the diagnostic test ourselves. We're certainly interpreting them all day long. And we need to know how that works. We can sort of apply a critical thinking approach to interpretation of the test results, knowing what we know from the evidence base. So go and have a read of that. That brings us to the end of the issue. Yes, it does. So see you soon. Bye-bye. Take care.